for this morning. Thanks for the music. It is a joy to be able to sing. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love to me. And face to face in all His glory, I shall see Him by and by. I was just thinking that Mike and I used, Mike Merritt and I used to work on the, what we were going to teach at Sunday school. At, sorry, not Sunday school, a prayer meeting. And uh, we have gone through the minor prophets and we are planning in the fall to look at the book of Joshua. And uh, I was sitting down there and thinking, maybe we'll do that. But Mike gets to meet Joshua face to face. But that pales in comparison to meeting the one we just sang about. Face to face, what will it be? When we meet our Savior face to face. That's who we long to see and look forward to. It is a joy and privilege to stand before you this morning and share from the Word of God. We are going to be looking at First Peter. We are nearing the end of the book. Uh, we'll be in First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, and we'll read that shortly. I was scheduled to speak from First Peter 1, verses 3 to 5, the verses that Evan shared this morning at the Lord's Supper. But uh, it was just a few weeks after breaking my wrist and having surgery to fix it, and it was extremely hard to type, and it was almost impossible to hold a pen to write. So Mike Genier graciously filled in for that message. So, But here I am this morning, and so the Lord is gracious and good. The Lord has been taking us as a family, as individuals, and here as a local assembly through a lot of difficult circumstances, and not something we would have chosen for ourselves. But praise God, He is so faithful and good, and He holds us up and carries us through and we are so thankful for all your prayers on behalf of our family and on behalf of our daughter, Kristen. Now, if you're like me, and perhaps like most people, you must at one time or another have thought how wonderful it would be if there was no pain and suffering in this world. But then as you think about that, and as you study scriptures, you begin to see how God can transform suffering into something that's beautiful and glorious and good. Think about it, if Joseph hadn't suffered and been in prison, he would never have come to Pharaoh's attention as someone who could interpret dreams. And that brought him to Pharaoh's attention and then took him to the top of, to be second in line to Pharaoh, to preserve Egypt and to preserve his family as they came. And the Lord preserved his people. If David hadn't suffered at the hand of Saul for years and years, and others too, we wouldn't have all those wonderful psalms that we have in Scripture, would we? That are such an encouragement to us today when we go through difficult times. If, if uh, Ruth hadn't suffered the loss of her husband and moved back to Bethlehem with Naomi, she would never have met her kinsman redeemer husband, Boaz, and then been in the line and the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if the Lord Jesus Christ hadn't suffered and bled and died, which we just remembered earlier this morning, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't have a hope, 
we wouldn't have this assurance of eternal life, we wouldn't have the assurance of meeting one's loved ones who've done before, we wouldn't have the confidence that they, we could sing, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love to me, face to face, I shall behold Him. And this morning, I can honestly say that I am thankful, truly thankful, for the suffering that comes into our lives. For it has drawn us close to the Lord, individually, and as a family. And just a couple of weeks ago, our son-in-law Cameron said exactly that on his third anniversary, it was the third wedding anniversary Memorial Day weekend. He said, I'm thankful for the suffering for Kristen's cancer, because it's brought us closer to him, and closer to one another. And so I can say this morning, I'm thankful. I can't say honestly, I greatly rejoice as Peter asked us to. But I am thankful. So this morning we're going to be reading, reading from First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. As you're turning there, I've asked Joel Burgess to come and read that passage for us. Joel. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved... Where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good, as to a faithful creator. Thank you, Joel, and may the Lord add his blessing on the reading of his word. Let's, let's pray and look to him. Father, we just thank you for this time to open your word. We thank you for the freedom to do it freely. Lord, I ask for the Holy Spirit to minister to us this morning, that the words that are said would come from you and be an encouragement, a blessing, a challenge to us as we seek to serve you. And we long and look forward to the day when we will see you face to face. Pray and go with us today. Pray for the Sunday school classes taking place, for your blessing on that also. Just ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So in this first two verses, verses 12 through 14, uh, you had an outline that was given to you this morning. Uh, I normally use Warren Beersby's outline, but this time I chose John Phillips because I like the alliteration better. <laughs> Just to remind you that the Word of God is inspired, the alliteration is not. <laughs> so verses 12 through 14, in, in these two verses, Peter outlines three things about suffering in a believer's life and I call it the three G's which uh, John Phillips used Uh, it's a guaranteed experience it's a gladdening experience and a glorifying experience firstly verse 12 
Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial. You know, in the upper room, our Lord Jesus said it was guaranteed. In this world, you will have tribulation. John 16, verse 33. And uh, the Apostle Paul reiterates that thought in 1 Timothy 3, verse 12. He says, in fact, everyone who lives a godly life will be persecuted. But praise God, that verse in, John, in the Gospel of John doesn't end with that. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, the Lord said. I have overcome. I have overcome the world. You know, John Phillips in his writing about this says that uh, the truly strange thing is not that we have suffering. He says the strange thing is some of the prosperity, prosperity gospel that's preached today. That seems to be popular in certain sections of this country. It's very popular in parts of Africa and South America. Yes, the Lord blesses us and abundantly. James 1 verse 17 says, Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variable or shadow of turning. Yes, He blesses us. But that's not the, the uh, prosperity gospel. Is, that's not the norm. That's in, the, in fact, it's the exact opposite of what mentioned for us in scripture the normal condition of the church and believers in a world that hates Christ and rejects him is to be rejected and persecuted in fact the Lord said that in John 15 and verse 18 if the world hates you remember that it hated me first and Peter dealt with this suffering and persecution and in fact he's writing this epistle primarily to encourage the believers and this morning it was mentioned, uh, living hope in chapter 1 verse 3. And look forward to what's ahead. And therefore that they were able to go through suffering. He dealt with suffering in chapter 3. And I think Evan covered that last week. Uh, uh, Miki covered uh, all parts of suffering also. But this suffering is a little bit different. There's normal suffering in the life of a believer. It's occasional and sporadic. And the Lord takes us through difficult but this was a fiery trial. The, words, the word that's used is uh, purosis. Purosis is just burnt in the fire, basically in the fire. And that same verse is used in Proverbs uh, 27 and verse 21 for refining metals. The furnace that's used to purify metals. And this fiery trial was not, is a special kind of persecution. It was not just occasional individual persecution but continuous official persecution from the Roman government, from, in fact, Emperor Nero, who was in, at the time ruling, and ruling as a, one of perhaps the worst emperors that uh, lived as far as for just evil and persecution of Christians. Let me read a short excerpt from church historian Andrew Miller, and, uh, who gives us this graphic account of the fiery trial that was on the Christians, at the, on the believers at that time. He writes, this was the first legal persecution of the Christians, and in some of its features it stands alone in the annals of human barbarity. Inventive cruelty sought out new ways of torture to satiate the bloody, bloodthirsty Nero, the most cruel emperor that ever lived. The gentle, peaceful, unoffending followers of the Lord Jesus were sown in the skins of wild beasts and torn apart by dogs. Or they were wrapped in a kind of dress smeared with wax, with pitch and other combustible matter, with a stake under the chin to keep them upright, and set on fire when the day closed, that they might be serving as lights in the public garden of popular amusements. 
Nero lent his own gardens for these exhibitions and gave entertainment for the people, and he took an active part in the games himself, sometimes mingling with the people. But accustomed as these people were to public executions and gladiatorial shows, they were moved to pity by the unexampled cruelties inflicted on the Christians. They began to see that they suffered not for the public good, but to gratify the cruelty of one man. But fearful as their death was, it was soon over, and to them, to the Christians, that is, the happiest moment of their existence. Long, long before the lights were quenched in Nero's garden, the martyrs had found their home and rest above in the blooming garden of God's eternal delights. The precious truth we learned from what the Savior said to the penitent thief on the cross. Today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. Those believers who had persecuted were in paradise with the Lord. And Peter says, that is guaranteed. You know, we might think that that's a different time and a different and yes it was and perhaps we'll, we'll never experience that kind of a persecution but there are other forms of persecution that are coming for us even in this society that we live in and as the days of the Lord's return go closer there will be more and we'll mention that in a little while so firstly it's a guaranteed experience you might wonder you know, I, th- I thought Everything will be hunky-dory and rosy when we follow the Lord. It doesn't always work that way, does it? But we have this living hope that we are with Him. We are in His hands. Everything that comes through us comes through Him. And He walks with us and carries us through. And we have a faithful high priest who intercedes for us. And we are going to see Him one day. And we can live in confidence in that, that He takes us through. He carries us through. What a wonderful Savior. Secondly, uh, a gladdening experience. I don't know if gladdening is a word. John Phillips used it, so I assume it was a word. Uh, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. You know, perhaps Peter was remembering his and the other apostles' own early experiences with persecution. If you turn back to Acts chapter 5, Remember that he and the other apostles were teaching and preaching in the temple, and, and um, the first, you know, they were locked up and thrown into prison. In Acts five, in verse seventeen, we, uh, verse nineteen, we see that at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out, and said, "Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life." And so they went to the temple, and when the officers came, they didn't find them in the prison. And they returned saying, Indeed, we found the prison door shut securely and the guards standing outside the door. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. And then those men were speaking in the temple. And the furious uh, leaders at the time would have killed them except for the wise counsel from Gamaliel of the Sanhedrin. And so they, they didn't kill them, but they, they uh, had beaten them. And they commanded that they should not speak. But they departed from the presence of the council. Verse 41 of chapter 5. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. My uh, niece, her name's Asha, she's a, she's a successful dentist in Houston right now, but a few years back at her dad's funeral, she shared this. Uh, she was studying, and that she's the middle of three siblings, 
all three were in college around the same time. And she was, uh, she seemed like everything that bad was happening was happening to her. And the other two siblings seemed to be doing so. I don't know if it was more upsetting to her that, that she was suffering, but the others, others were not, perhaps. But she said she, she was just complaining about it. And right before her exam, she broke her arm. And she was just kind of pitying herself and complaining to her dad. And her dad sat her down. And he said, Asha, you know, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 and verse 10, he says that I may, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. He said, all of us want to know him and the power of his resurrection, but Paul doesn't end there. He said, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. The fellowship of his sufferings is a gift from God. Let me say that again. The fellowship of his sufferings is a gift from God. Not every believer grows to the point where God can trust him or her with this kind of experience. God knew that he could trust Job and he allowed him to suffer. It was January 2020. I think it was the 15th. I'm not sure the exact date. It might have been the 15th. Mid-January. I was coming down the elevator in the, from the hospital to the parking lot, the physician's parking lot. There's a little room. My phone rang. And uh, so I, I picked it up. It was the ENT oncology surgeon calling with the diagnosis of Kristen's sarcoma. And I, so I stopped in that. I didn't go out in the garage because the, the cell phone reception is spotty. And he was telling me what the diagnosis was. And I'm a pathologist by training. So I know what cancers are and what they can do. And I was standing in that room and listening to him talk and and there were some of the other doctors walking by. They knew that something. They asked, can, can we help? And I said, no, it's okay. I knew it was going to be difficult. I didn't know how difficult. I had no idea how difficult it was going to be. With all that she had to go through, and removing part of her jaw, and putting a titanium plate, and no bone graft, and chemotherapy and radiation and chemo again and being clear for a number of months and then the tumor recurring last September and then being on chemo again the tumor responding it's a difficult journey but honestly I can say I can say again that I'm not greatly rejoicing but I am thankful you see it's not only drawn our family close she has a lot of cousins and families, all of whom are really doing well in life. They're young families, doing well professionally. And it's drawn all of them closer to the Lord. Many of you read her blog. And her blog has blessed so many people. I know some of you have shared that with us. As the songwriter says, many things about tomorrow, I don't seem to understand. But I know who holds tomorrow. And I know he holds my hand. And he holds Joyce's hand, and Kristen's hand, Cameron's hand, Andrew's hand. All our hands this morning. 
So suffering can be a gladdening experience. This practically, for those of you who for people who are going through difficult circumstances, just a few practical things for you. Number one, pray for them. Pray for them. Number two, be there for them, whether it's through an encouraging text, or a card, or a visit, or a call. Be there for them. And number three, provide practical help. I can tell you that there's a couple of ladies in the Indian Fellowship that we're part of now who have provided food for us through, because we go a lot of the weekends and we're not here. And there have been weeks on end where we haven't, Joyce hasn't had to cook anything because the food was provided. So it's just some practical things for us to help those who are going through difficult circumstances. A guaranteed experience, a gladdening experience. Thirdly, a glorifying, a glorifying experience. You know, God doesn't necessarily replace suffering with glory, but He will and He can transform suffering to glory. In John 16, verses 20 through 22, which is in the upper room, Jesus used the illustration of a woman giving birth. The same baby that brought her pain during delivery is transformed into joy at the sight and touch of the newborn baby. The thorn in the flesh that the Apostle Paul had gave him difficulty, but it also brought him the grace and strength of God. And the cross that was an object of humiliation and shame and suffering for the Lord Jesus was the means to bring power and glory to all those who trust in him. A glorifying experience, verse 14. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. I read the book a long time ago, and I, John Phillips again in his commentary on this has a long excerpt from, on, from Uncle Tom's Cabin. Many of you have read the book. And I, I'll like to read, you remember that uh, his uh, slave owner, Simon Legree, it's a story, but uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote it in the 1850s. Ah. His slave owner was just incensed with Uncle Tom because he was a believer and he had the joy of the Lord in him and he was always singing and in spite of the crew. And so he's particularly made sure he tortured him and he gave him difficulty. And I'll just read one little excerpt that uh, towards the end of Uncle Tom's life in the story. As two of uh, Simon Legree's women slaves escaped and he, the slave owner, took out his rage on Tom. Well, Tom, said Legree, walking up and seizing him grimly by the collar of his coat and speaking through his teeth in a paroxysm of determined rage, do you know I have made up my mind to kill you? And Tom looked at his master and answered this. He said, Master, if you were sick or in trouble or dying and I could save you, I'd give you my heart's blood. And if taking every drop of blood in this poor old body would save your precious soul, I'd give him freely, as the Lord gave his for me. Oh, Master, don't bring this great sin on your soul. It will hurt you more than it will hurt me. Do the worst you can. Troubles will be over soon. But if you don't repent, yours won't never end. Tom did not recover from that beating by the two slaves, uh, Sambo and Quimbo. He's mostly gone, Master, said Sambo, touched in spite of himself by the patience of his victim. Yet Tom was not quite gone. 
his wondrous words and pious prayers had struck upon the hearts of those two slaves who had been the instruments of cruelty upon him. That very night, Tom led those two black men who had carried out the will of the Master to the Lord. And uh, John Phillips writes this, Thus Uncle Tom, that poor black slave, exemplified the words of Peter. Though reproached for the name of Christ, he was happy. He could even sing. The spirit of glory and of God rested upon him. Simon Legree, the slave owner, cursed the name of Jesus. The very man that Simon Legree murdered glorified that same Jesus. Just a story, but what a story. That book had a lot to do with the end of slavery in this country. Are we able to glorify the Lord in times of suffering? Remember Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, who was burned at the stake, middle of the second century. He was arrested for his faith and asked to recant, and he he's reported to have said this, Eighty and six years have I served him, that's Christ, and he never did me any injury. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? He was burned at the stake, and his martyrdom brought glory to God and strengthened the faith of many. A glorifying experience. God can transform suffering to glory. Let's move on. Verses 15 through 19. In these verses, uh, Peter kind of closes this discussion on suffering and examines uh, possible reasons for suffering and examines three areas. Is there a specific reason for suffering? Is there a special reason? Or is there a spiritual reason for it? And there might be some overlap between these reasons. Is there a specified or specific reason for this? Verses 15 and 16. Peter's point in these two verses is, if you suffer as a Christian, let it be for your Christ-like behavior, not because of something wrong that you've done. Let me say that again. Because of your Christ-like behavior, not because of something wrong that you've done. Yes, we can suffer for things we've done wrong. Remember David and Bathsheba and the sin and his family was broken apart. The child that was born of that union died. And then his whole family, you you see all that happened after that. You have Jonah commanded to go to Nineveh and going the exact opposite and he suffers for it. Sometimes you can suffer for because of wrong things other people did. Think the Apostle Paul in uh, Acts, towards the end of Acts, remember that ship, uh, that uh, storm that was there? He had told them they were going to encounter a storm, but the sailors and the captain didn't listen. They went anyway. And Paul had to suffer along with them. Warren Wiersbe, in writing about this, writes, there's two kinds of storms in a believer's life. There's storms of correction, and there's storms of perfection. Storms of correction, storms of perfection, storms of correction for something we've done. Storms of perfection to draw us closer to the Lord. Here, this uh, first section, he, uh, Peter writes, Don't suffer because of something wrong you've done. Firstly, he, uh, as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. You know, the people that uh, Peter is addressing, many of whom were brought uh, salvation through Paul's ministry, came from many backgrounds, and I didn't know this, but in Galatia, for instance, personal vendettas were common. In fact, they were an obligation, much like the Sicilian mafia. You know, if your family was 
something happened to them, you took revenge and killed the other person. And the uh, Sicaria in the time were once the zealots who carried that little dagger with them, and they were so anti-Roman and anti-government, and they thought it, they really didn't consider it much if they found someone who was cooperating with the Romans, they would kill them. That's why they carried the dagger around. Simon the Zealot was from that group, one of the Lord's disciples. So Peter says, don't, uh, if you suffer, don't suffer for something wrong you've done. Maybe you were that in the past, but no longer, you cannot be that any longer. And the Lord can take murderers and, and change them. I've shared the story, and you've perhaps read it, and yeah, I think it's in one of Jim Simbala's books. And I remember growing up reading about this person in Reader's Digest in India, uh, who was a serial killer named Son of Sam in the 1970s in New York. Sam Berkowitz, he's of Jewish extraction. He's now in prison without parole for life. Came to know the Lord in prison. He leads Bible studies in that prison. He knows that he'll never get out, but he's content. He knows he's being punished. But he's now serving a different master. So let none suffer as a murderer, none suffer as a thief. The word used there is really one who steals in secret. In olden times you could be hung for theft, or in some Middle Eastern countries even today you could have an arm cut off for theft. Thou shalt not steal is the Eighth Commandment. Sadly today in parts of our country we have people brazenly going into stores and just walking away and stealing. Yes, they're not suffering now, but judgment will come unless they repent. The word uh, in the evildoer and the malcontent is the same word that's used for the uh, thief on the cross, a malefactor. And the last one that Peter mentions is the meddler or the busybody. The word used for busybody is used only once and here in scripture. It literally means to be an overseer in things that are really the concern of someone else. Let me say that again. To be an overseer in things that are really the concern of someone else. You remember in the last chapter of John, and Jesus and Peter and John are walking, and, and John, Peter asks about John, what's to become of him? And the Lord says, you don't worry about him. If I wanted to remain until I come back, he, he will. You follow me. Sometimes we are more concerned about the way other people are following the Lord than ourselves. And Peter says, don't be a busybody. Don't suffer because of something that you did that meddles in other person's lives. You follow me. The Apostle Paul had, uh, you know, today a lot of, especially young people, a lot of people are involved in activist causes. And in a sense, what uh, Peter is saying is, and what Paul does in response to that issue is Paul, you know, he urges to follow the governmental authorities that are properly constituted in Romans 13. To, uh, the, the, the two evils of that day were slave, ownery, slave ownership and uh, a corrupt government of the Romans. And in both cases, in the case of slave ownership, you have that wonderful example in the book of Phil, uh, uh, Philemon, where the what he does is he encourages his slave owner to treat Onesimus as a brother in Christ. And so what Paul's saying is, Paul wants to draw people to Christ, and that can change lives and societies. And Peter, in a sense, is saying exactly that. And you've seen that time and time again in history, haven't you, in the Welsh revival, prior to the Welsh, in the Wesleyan revivals, and how the whole country came in the Welsh revival, here with the Billy Graham Crusades, 
people, when people change, societies can change. And we are to be salt and light to change, even in this dark age that we live in, that we are able to be witnesses for Him. So don't suffer because of something wrong that you've done. If you're going to suffer, suffer due to Christian activity. You know, the word Christian, which is here in verse uh, 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. The word Christian occurs only three times in Scripture. Here in First Peter, in uh, the book of Acts, in chapter 11, the followers of Christ were first called Christians in Antioch. And then the third time it occurs when Paul is testifying before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. And he says, almost you persuade me to be a Christian. And you can almost see that, uh, I, I'm not sure how sincere Agrippa was. I think you almost see the sneer that you think it's so easy for me to become a Christian. And even today, especially for evangelical, fundamental Christians, that's how society treats us, with a sneer and with scorn. And the Romans, although they initially ignored Christians as a potential threat, realized that they could be a significant threat to the Roman way of life. And that's how they, that official persecution started. Today persecution, but you know what happened when persecution started? People moved, gospel spread, and what God had intended happened, that the church spread to many countries. Now Peter had no way of knowing how long this persecution would last, only that it was certain to happen. But praise God, the church continued to grow. As you've heard the expression, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. To be not be ashamed, verse uh, 16, is the negative, but glorify God is the positive, and it takes both for a balanced witness. If we seek to glorify God, we will not be ashamed of the name of Jesus Christ. I, I do believe in this country we will face increasing persecution in the coming years. It might be more subtle. Uh, just a few days ago, you had one of the teams in Florida where five of the players refused to wear the pride patch on their outfits. Now they were allowed to do that. But I'm sure there's a day coming when whoever that team owner is or is going to say, if you don't wear that, you're no longer part of the team. That is persecution. That's coming. It's already happening. It's not coming. In, it's in, in many settings, it's already coming. And you can bring up numerous examples of subtle forms of persecution. Today, much of corporate America, you have to take diversity training. Diversity training involves things that you uh, uh, won't consider biblical. Uh, yes, we love everyone. We are hard to love even the sinner. We have to love the LGBTQ community, but that doesn't mean as believers we have to celebrate it. But we should be the most compassionate of all people to it. That's hard to do. That balance is very hard. Especially when you're pushed and society as a whole begins to condemn you when you don't. When you don't celebrate that. You're condemned as a bigot. That is persecution. That's the society we live in. That's the society your children are going to grow up in. The little ones that run around the chapel here are going to face that. 
How do we stand firm? We have a living hope in the Lord Jesus. A living hope in the Lord Jesus. Let's move on. Uh, Verses 17 through 18. Is there a special reason for the suffering? Verse 17. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. Judgment to begin at the house of God. Suffering designed to cleanse the church. Judgment must begin at the house of God. God allowed persecution to come to the church and overruled that. He was still in control. And when persecution began, like I mentioned, people, believers scattered and took the gospel with them and the church grew in other places. Perhaps Peter was remembering the time where he himself had brought disciplinary action against Ananias and Sapphira and death on lying to the Lord. As a result, great fear came upon the church, but couple verses after that you read this believers were the more added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women by the time Peter wrote these two epistles apostasy was making itself at home in the church and God brought persecution as a means of winnowing the chaff from the church I think of the Christian church today in our country of sin that is both tolerated and celebrated in the church, in the so-called church. God is loving and patient and not long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. But there will be judgment unless you are trusting Christ. If you pervert the word of God, there will be judgment. Suffering designed to cleanse the church and suffering designed to warn the world. The fact that God does indeed judge his own people all ought to sound the alarm for the wicked. I think the application of that is important. Instead of only being concerned for ourselves and some suffering that we may be going through, we know that that suffering is temporary. There is a day coming when we will be in glory with Him. How that should motivate us to those who don't know the Lord Jesus Because that suffering is going to be eternal for them. That should motivate us to reach out to them, to draw them to the Lord, shouldn't it? That's one of the reasons for suffering. We know our suffering is, yes, it's painful, it's difficult, and Lord carries us through. But we know that it's temporary. That's why the Apostle Paul says this light suffering, that there will be glory one day. How much more those who don't know the Lord that we need to be just our heart should be breaking for them who don't know the Lord that the suffering that they're going to undergo is eternal that's why we continue to present the gospel the gospel is still the power of salvation power of God unto salvation Romans 1.16 so is there a Special Is there a specified reason? Is there a special le- reason? Lastly, is there a spiritual reason? Verse 19, Paul is finishing the section with, Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why me, Lord? What should the believer's reaction be when he or she is overwhelmed by suffering? Peter suggests two things. Undaunted commitment to God and undoubting confidence in God. We have to fall back on this truth. This commitment, commit their souls to Him. 
to God. It's not a one-time thing, it's a constant committing. How do we do that? We do that in continuing to do good by means of well-doing. I remember I was uh, probably just a little kid at the time, and later on my mom telling the story of my dad. Uh, he and as he was working in India, and he and uh, a fellow uh, a person who was at the same level, and they were both seeking a promotion that was due to one. And the other person kept writing memos and letters and things and trying to impugn my dad's character. And it was, uh, you know, I was I was tiny, I, I, small, I, I didn't know, and, and I only heard about it later. But Dad continued doing what he was doing. He knew that he was innocent. He knew that, and he just continued working and doing his best and serving the Lord as best as he could. And in due time, that other person was exposed for what he had done, and my Dad got the promotion. Continue in doing good. You remember when many of the followers of the Lord turned away from him during his earthly ministry and the Lord turned to his disciples and asked, Will you leave me also? And Peter was the one who replied. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Isn't that true? To whom shall we go? He has the words of eternal life. Let me read this carefully. God is too loving to be unkind. God is too wise to make any mistakes. God is too powerful to be thwarted in his divine purposes. Let me read that again. God is too loving to be unkind, too wise to make any mistakes, too powerful to be thwarted in his divine purposes. And we have to trust that and commit ourselves to him. We are learning that as a family. The songwriter writes in one of the songs in our black book, How good is the God we adore? our faithful, unchangeable friend. His love is as great as his power. It neither knows measure nor end. His love is as great as his power. It neither knows measure nor end. Hallelujah. Undaunted commitment, secondly, undoubting confidence. When Peter refers to his God as a faithful creator, he does that because God the creator meets the needs of his people. That's what we read in Matthew 6. When the early church was persecuted, they met together for prayer in Acts 4.24. They prayed this, God which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. They prayed to the Creator God who met their needs. And praise God, He's the same God who created. He does not change. He's the same yesterday, today and forever. You know, Job suffered terribly as the Lord allowed it. He lost his ten beloved children, his fortune, his health, and his whole body was racked with pain. His friends did not sympathize. In fact, they sermonized. The only time they sympathized, I think, was those first seven days when they sat quietly with him. And uh, Job's cup of bitterness was full when his friends accused him of having done wrong, being wicked, and he knew that was false. He answered Zophar in Job thirteen, fifteen. That is Job saying, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Undaunted commitment. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego told King Nebuchadnezzar when they refused to bow down before the golden statue, and they were going to be thrown into the furnace. Our God, O King, is able to save us. But even if he does not, we will not bow before you. Our God is able to save us, and he did. 
he walked with them in the fire. There wasn't even the smell of smoke when they came out. Undoubting confidence. May the Lord give us the grace and strength to be able to do and to say the same. I'm thankful for suffering. I'm thankful that it's temporary. I'm thankful that there's a hope of glory. Colossians 1.27 says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's a living hope. So in closing, let me ask you this. Do you have that hope? Is Christ in you? I was talking to Chris Cousins this morning and I talking about some difficult circumstances families go through. And I said, were it not for the Lord and our hope in Him, I'm not sure how we would deal with the suffering that we go through. But He is our rock. We can lean on Him. We can trust in Him. The uh, Joyce sent out a meditation this morning. We have a front door wreath. And every year, it's not the same bird, it's probably a different bird every year. It builds a nest in that wreath. And because uh, you see this bird coming into flying towards the front door, and we saw that happening this year. And then one, one day a few weeks back, I just, I you know, I was, I just picked up the wreath off the door, and I looked, and uh, uh, sure enough, up top, right the top of the wreath, there's a nest, and there were six eggs in it. And so without touching it, and I just carefully put the wreath back on, and then we didn't see the bird for a couple of days. So we thought, oh, you know, they probably have the human smell on there, and. It's not, but it came back. There's a bunch of baby birds in that, in that little nest on the front door wreath. The front door doesn't get open that often. You know, you're coming through the garage. And Joyce sent out a meditation this morning. You know, what made that bird down? Build that nest there. It's it's a wreath. It's protected. You know, it's high enough that the neighborhood cats cannot reach it. But it's perhaps the solid door that's behind it. Perhaps it's the big house that's behind it. But it's this idea that there's something strong behind it. Yes, we have that same strength in the Lord. We can lean on Him. He is our rock. There's nothing that we need fear. Because He is with us. But do you need to know Him personally? Do you know Him? Maybe your family's doing well at this time. But if something happens and that changes, do you have the hope that Christ is in you and that you will be with Him one day? If not, you can do it this morning. Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And in fact, in a few verses later, Romans 10.13 says, In fact, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's just confessing that you are a sinner, that you have no hope in you, that you trust Him for your hope, and that He, you will be with Him one day. And you can sing, as we sang this morning, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love to me. Face to face I shall behold Him. What a day that will be. May the Lord bless His word this morning. Let's close in prayer. Father, we just thank you again for the majesty and glory of who you are and what you are to us. Thank you that you're a rock, the shelter in the time of storm. 
in our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. I do pray, Lord, if there's any this morning that does not have that hope, that they would seek you and turn their lives to you. And pray for each one going through difficult circumstances that you continue to lift us up, that we can be thankful and even rejoice for all that you take us through, that you are with us, you promise to be with us always till the end of the age. Thank you for that. We pray especially for Kathy Merritt this morning and for the family, for your continuing to be with them. Thank you that Mike is in your presence. Thank you for Ferd Averill and for his home going and for your comfort for that family. Be with us the rest of the day and commit our days to you. Till you do come, Lord Jesus, keep us faithful in the things you've given us to do. We just ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.